All right, before I even get started tonight, uh, I do this pretty much every time I I preach on the topic of marriage, but I'm going to share with you, I've read a couple dozen books on marriage. It's part of my job as a Christian pastor to read Christian books on marriage. The single best one that I've ever read that I recommend to everybody and gifted away is Tim Keller's Meaning of Marriage. I don't know if you can see from there how well-worn this is. It has what seems to be either coffee or cat urine on it because it's so used in the Hein household and... uh, Either way, I'm not going to smell and figure it out, but it's well worth, I've read, been through it numerous, numerous times, and it's worth every penny of it. So I want to recommend that to you. Uh, and a lot of what I'm going to say about the covenant concept of marriage is going to come from that book here tonight and Keller's teaching on that. But we're going to read our text tonight from Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, where we read, Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, what did Moses command you? He asked. Uh, They said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Well, it's because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Jesus replied, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. And he answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Here ends our lesson. If you're here last week, Jesus, he finished up the work that he was doing that he wanted to accomplish in Capernaum, and he's starting to head south with his disciples through the Transjordan region as he's making his way down to Jerusalem. And the Transjordan region was ruled by a guy that we brought up several weeks ago by the name of Herod Antipas, and Herod Antipas was the guy who famously beheaded John the Baptist. You remember why? It's because John the Baptist had been in prison and ultimately beheaded because he had called Herod Antipas and his wife Herodias out on their unlawful adultery, divorce, and marriage. And the idea is perhaps that the Pharisees are thinking to themselves, okay, if we can get Jesus to slip into saying something similar to what John the Baptist said, maybe this will be the end of him as well. And so they come to Jesus and they propose this question And we're going to take it from Matthew chapter 19 because it's a little bit longer and more detailed here. Specifically, the question looks like this. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And I think this is both a test and genuine curiosity because there was a lot of division and debate in that day amongst the Jews regarding the qualifications for divorce. There were two major schools of thought. Uh, Two contemporary rabbis at the time, Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel, who had both kind of a conservative and liberal interpretation of a section from Deuteronomy 24 about the legitimacy of divorce that says it can come through uncleanness. Now, there's interpretations. What exactly does that mean? And see, the stricter school, Rabbi Shammai's uh, group, essentially he said, look, it has something to do with unchastity. And unchastity doesn't mean adultery because in the Old Testament, Jews were executed for adultery. They weren't just divorced for adultery, they were stoned to death. So unchastity must mean something different and it probably means something 
uh, along the lines of some other kind of romantic indecency, or if you found out that somebody was uh, sexually active prior to marriage, that would be grounds. The more liberal interpretation of this, however, Rabbi Hillel's version said really any indecency legitimized divorce. And there were some rabbis at this time that were saying, okay, well, really, literally, they got it down to the fact of if uh, your wife burns dinner or if you find somebody that you think you have better chemistry with and compatibility with, you can divorce your wife and remarry. And the Pharisees, what they're doing is they're testing Jesus because they know, look, if he answers this question, they present him with an either-or situation because whatever side he comes down on, he's going to alienate half the people, right? Because if the community is divided and he comes down with a stance on this, immediately half the people are not, not going to like his stance. So what the Pharisees are doing is they're trying to get him to say something that will be both divisive and potentially incriminating. And so what Jesus does is he turns it back on him. He turns it back on him and he says, okay, you tell me, what does it say in the law about divorce? What did Moses say? And they said, well, Moses permitted divorce partially in order to help maintain peace in society at the time. And Jesus responds by giving them three things. The first thing he says is he affirms that, yes, Moses permitted divorce. And you know why? Because their hearts were hard. Because your hearts were hard. You know what hard in hearts is? Fortunately, the, the Bible gives us practically just a definition, a definition of a hardened heart in Zechariah chapter 7, where Zechariah says, you made your hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the word that God was trying to give you through his messengers. So hardening your heart has something to do with not listening to God's very clear will presented by God's messengers. The most famous example of this in the Bible, I'm sure a lot of you could probably point to is the example of the Pharaoh of the Exodus who hardened his heart to God. And how did that work? Well, God sent him a message through a messenger in Moses. And what did Pharaoh do? He hardened his heart to that. And what does that mean? Does that mean he didn't believe, he didn't think the God of Israel existed? No. We have a very, modern people have a very narrow definition of what belief and unbelief means that the bar is way too low on what constitutes belief. We tend to think, well, an atheist, that's a non-believer because they don't believe in the existence of God. Yeah, even for that matter, somebody who doesn't uh, identify Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Yep, that also is unbelief, but the bar is actually higher than that. In Scripture, unbelief is when you refuse to submit to the very clear will of God, when you harden yourself to the will of God. That's unbelief. And therefore, Moses, for the Israelites in the Old Testament, says to them, okay, if your spouse does that, in other words, if they refuse to any, for any longer submit themselves before God, you are allowed to let them go for the sake of the peace of society, for the sake of the believing party in that marriage not being torn down by the other person's unbelief, you are allowed to separate from that individual. So it's a concession that Moses makes for spiritual hardness. That's the first thing. Jesus uh, says, yes, Moses did permit divorce because of hardened unbelief. The second thing that he says is, let's not just look at what's permissible in society. Let's go back to what God designed. So he goes back to the Garden of Eden. And he says, at that point, God created marriage by using a singular male, a singular female, uniting them together in a union that was physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual. And I think, you know, this is one of those things that it's obvious that the union between a husband and wife is physical without trying to sound like crass at all about this. It's obvious that they fit together. 
what I think gender theory is eventually going to figure out, and it's interesting, gender theory as a study wasn't largely a thing that we know it today until the deconstruction of the postmodern 90s. So some of you have been raised always thinking gender was this controversial thing, and it hasn't always been quite that way. And I say this without trying to disparage or be insensitive to anybody who struggles with the issue of a congruence between what they feel as their gender versus what they are to be scientifically sexually. In fact, I'm even going to push this a little bit farther and say, I think that to some extent that is opening our cultural eyes to something, namely, you can learn something from ev everyone, by the way. And one of the things that I've learned by the debate surrounding gender theory in recent years is that it's very important to recognize that our gender goes way beyond our genitalia, okay? Our gender goes beyond genitalia. It's always, I don't know if it should be amusing to me or not when people take down notes and I can tell what words they're writing down and somewhere 20 years later in their Bibles they're going to see a note and uh, not know what that means. But our, basically, our sexuality is more than our sexual expression. In fact, it's on a subcellular level. And what I'm absolutely convinced science is going to produce for us in the long run, because it's true from the Bible, is that not only are husband and wife compatible physically, but the, the mind-blowing concept is male and female are compatible emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. Uh, it goes way deeper than just our physicality, in other words. And by God's design, and what Jesus' emphasis here is, make no mistake, all of that's in there, but Jesus is emphasizing the physical right now. And I know that, why? Because the way he phrases marriage is what? He says the two become one flesh. He doesn't say the two become one spirit, even though that's kind of important. For the purposes of the context and discussing the question about divorce, he says the two become one flesh. And that's because his final point in this is the only way that you should then get out of the marriage contract and the marriage covenant is if the flesh is broken. There's two ways that the flesh of the covenant can be broken. One would be through adultery and the other would be through God ending a person's life. In both cases, that's a flesh uh, breaking the covenant situation. But the point Jesus is doing is he's helping people see the seriousness attached to like marital fidelity. That brings us to the final section in here. Uh, remember, what God has joined together, let no one separate. This marriage is God's doing. A Christian marriage is God's doing. You've got to think of it like that. And in the final verses, he takes his disciples aside. They go into the house and they start asking him some further questions about this. And I think you also need to understand the context here that we've mentioned this a long time ago at the beginning of Mark. Mark's primary audience, so far as we can tell, is believers in Rome. Divorce was not at this particular time that unusual in, in the Roman Empire or in the city of Rome. Today, it's statistically not that unusual. That changes in a culture. 75 years ago, if you were divorced in America, there very often was some level of stigma attached to it that just doesn't really exist today. And what I want you to understand, what Jesus is getting at here is he's, he's trying to get people who have a little bit of a flippant attitude about divorce to recognize, to sober up and recognize its seriousness by painting divorce in the light of adultery. Because adultery then and now is still offensive and Jesus is trying to get his listeners to hear that offense to people where it's become very commonplace. Now, I also want you to see that he's saying it both to men and women, which is actually a little unusual. He's saying both men and women, if you're uh, a woman leaves her husband, uh, divorces him and remarries apart from unfaithfulness, what he's doing is he's sort of ironically elevating the position of women in society in that day by giving them equal levels of responsibility over the maintenance of this Christian relationship. 
He's trying to get them to see the seriousness of it. I think we understand that. And I'm going to not, not share with you all the statistics on it, although I am going to share some. Because I want you to recognize, if you don't consciously go the opposite direction of your culture, you just become a product of your culture. And interestingly, the divorce rate in America has actually gone down in the most recent years, but that's only because, you can twist numbers to mean whatever you want to mean, I know that, but the divorce rate has gone down. You know why? Because the marriage rate has also gone down. So we went from a place where in the middle of the 20th century, the divorce rate kept going up and up and up and up and up, and it started to go down. Why? Because people became so disenchanted with marriage that they just stopped getting married. Uh, so that's where the society is kind of adding this. And so it's actually more helpful to me to look at statistics like how many kids in America today are brought up in a household where mom and dad are actually together. In 1968, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, that number was 80%. 80% of kids were born and raised in two-parent homes for 18 years in 1968. By 2020, that number is 75%, so it dropped down 15 percentage points, but even that doesn't tell the full story. If you ask the question, how many kids grow up in homes where mom and dad are together throughout the total duration of zero to 18, so like the whole years they're at home, the number drops significantly, way below half. And so there's a, actually a small percentage of kids born in the last five or ten years in our country who will grow up with mom and dad married in a home for the duration of their childhood. You say, well, why do you even have to highlight that? That makes people feel bad. And, and, and I get that too. I want you to know that it's not me necessarily highlighting that. I was actually a little surprised to see the U.S. Census Bureau somewhat defensively uh, say this. They said, uh, you can tell they're almost kind of defending the fact that they're tracking this. Monitoring these trends is important because children's living arrangements can have implications for children's outcomes. Not all environments for upbringing produce equally positive results, uh, such as academic achievements, internalizing problems like rates of depression and anxiety, externalizing problems like anger and aggression. These things are important. Uh, for the future of our nation, right? The last thing that I want to say here is, as a Christian pastor, a lot of people ask at some point in time in their marriage for input. Members ask for input and re reflection on marriage. Guys are significantly more likely to go to a spiritual leader than they are to go to a professional counselor, especially on marital issues. The thing that I sometimes get from people that I've counseled over the course of years is not, they won't overtly say this usually, but as I give them some biblical advice for something, sometimes they'll say something insinuating, don't tell me how to run my marriage. And to that, I generally want to say back, I don't want to tell you how to run your marriage. That's not my business. As long as you understand that it's not your marriage. I shouldn't tell you how to run your marriage, but you also don't get to say how you want to run your marriage. Because this marriage is God's marriage. Why? Because what God joined together, no one gets to separate. This isn't your relationship. This is God's relationship. And if you want this relationship to be a Christian marriage, there's a couple things that have to fall into place. It's God's relationship because he designed it, but it's also God's relationship because he's the one that joined us together, let no one separate. If you don't want a Christian marriage, fine, do whatever you want. But if you want it to be a Christian marriage, then you have to get out of the way and let God call the shots on how it's supposed to operate. Okay, let's look at some applications of this. We're going to do some applications for those who are married those who are single, and actually for all people too, okay? So we're getting to you if we don't get to you right up front. First of all, for the married, although I think some of them are beneficial for all. For the married, I want you to think about a covenant relationship. How would you define marriage? A lot of people, when they define marriage, 
if I asked 100 people, a good chunk of them would define it in terms of affection that I have for someone else. Well, you know, a lot of people have very strong affection for their dogs and vice versa. And yet we don't say they're married to their dog. And some people uh, like to define marriage in terms of things like uh, building a family, offspring, procreation, or even sexual fulfillment. I'll tell you what. Uh, so far as I can tell, rabbits are actually significantly more efficient at procreation than human beings are, and yet we don't look at rabbits and say, look at that nice little married couple, right? In other words, what I'm trying to get at is I think a lot of times when people describe marriage or try to define what marriage is, they use descriptors of marriage that aren't actually the essence of marriage, and that's an issue. Because the essence of marriage, according to the Bible, is a covenant relationship. And what is a covenant relationship? What is marriage? It is when two people come together and make a public vow before witnesses with legal ramifications. You notice that even in this text, even in these days, Jesus talks about divorce as giving a woman a certificate of divorce. Even back then, they had lots of paperwork, you know? So it's a, there's a legal issue attached to this. You make a public vow. It has witnesses before it. You uh, has as legal ramifications attached to it. And the final thing is, and you're pledging to put somebody else's best interest ahead of your own. If you don't do those things, I don't know what you have, but it's not a marriage. And therefore, don't do the things that God designs for marriage in whatever that relationship is. Moving on from that, I, I do want you to understand some of the, the ways God talks about marriage. And one of the interesting ways to think about it is the way God speaks about his relationship with his people. So for instance, even in the Old Testament, God would often call his people, the nation of Israel, his bride. And look at something fairly provocative that he says right here in Ezekiel chapter 16. He says, I passed by and when I looked at you, he's talking about the nation of Israel, and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. You notice when he describes it, there's intimacy, there's passion, there's vulnerability, there's nakedness, but none of those things is the essence of it. The essence of it is a gracious covenant established by oath. And what this means then is if you are married, you should absolutely assume in life your affections are going to rise and fall and your feelings are going to rise and fall and your like is going to rise and fall and seasons are going to come and go, but you're not covenanted by your feelings. You're covenanted by an oath to God and an oath to another human being. So whatever may come in life, trust that God is going to give you the resources to carry out the vow that you have made to him and to your spouse. The second point is, so understand it's a covenant relationship in marriage. The second thing that I want married people to understand is the, I don't think I could possibly overstate the importance of friendship. Have you ever noticed that when God brought Eve to Adam back in the garden, he bursts out into poetry. He says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And there's a couple interesting things here. First of all, it's the first poetry that we find in the Bible. And it tells us to some extent that God created art as a way of expressing profound affections that cannot simply be summarized by mere words. So you notice, like, why do we do things like sing? Why don't we just read the, the lyrics? Because art, there's is an expressive component of human beings that can only be profoundly expressed by way of art form. The second thing that we learn here, though, is that when Adam talks about Eve, he says, she's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In other words, he says, first he says, bone of my bones. Bones are deeper than flesh. 
What does that mean? There absolutely is a flesh union in marriage, but he's saying there's a union that's more, more pronounced, more profound than flesh. It's not just a physical fleshly interaction or mixing, but actually it is a friendship and a companionship. It goes down to the bone. See? It's extraordinarily practical for anybody who's considering marriage and anybody who's currently struggling in marriage. In part because a lot of times when I've done marriage counseling and people will say, well, we have lost some of the passion that we once had or we've fallen out of love and and I'll get to this more in a second. But one of the things they want to do is rekindle some of the romance and passion. And that's very difficult to do when you have two people who are at odds with one another. And what I'll say is do everything you can to rekindle the friendship. Present yourself to your spouse as someone that they can trust, someone that they can share with their deepest struggles and fears. They can share with their hopes and dreams. They can share with what makes them most sad in the world and what makes them most happy in the world. You need to laugh together and you need to go on an adventure together in life and you need to do whatever it takes to be good friends with one another. The rest of the stuff sort of works itself out and over time if you're able to recapture the friendship of marriage. And by the way, all the research bears this out as well. Uh, A number of years ago, a researcher by the name of Linda Waite wrote about a 40-page report that you can find online that said, couples who are currently unhappy in their marriages, if you continue to put in the effort, you can continue to put in the work, if you stay together and don't just run away from it, two-thirds of those couples will end up in a happy relationship, the same relationship within a matter of five years. In other words, when people feel like they're in a burning building, the first thing they do is look for an exit. But if you lock the doors and say, this is a covenant that is binding us together, God will give you the resources to figure it out. Okay? And the final thing that I want to say in this is I want to challenge married couples to conjecture what Satan might be trying to say to you regarding your circumstances at various points. You know, a long time ago when we had, so long time ago, there used to be these little bracelets that said, what would Jesus do? A lot of Christian leaders then said, well, what's really more important was what did Jesus do, which is true. What I actually want somebody to make a bracelet of is what would Satan say? Like in my current circumstance, all Satan does is lie. He gets you to frame your circumstances in ways that are biblically patently untrue. And so when people come to me and they say cliche things, they're, they're so cliche, it's almost as though they're coming from an original source because I think that they are. I think at the end of the day, there's one individual who's whispering similar things in everybody's ears. Things like, we just fell out of love with one another. We're just different people now. We've just grown apart. Irreconcilable differences just gets whispered. And what you have to do as a Christian is you have to fight against that. You have to fight to say, nope, I know what a covenant is. I know my marriage is essentially a covenant. You have to know what that covenant is. Secondly, you have to know the covenant that God established with you through the blood of Jesus Christ. So it's based on grace. And if God makes covenants like that, what are the covenants that I make? They should reflect that. The third thing, very practical, just work as hard as you can to be very good friends with your spouse first and let God take care of the rest of the results. Okay? So that's for the married. Let's move on to our singles. First thing that I want to say here, candidates for marriage. Who are good candidates for marriage? Everybody wants to understand. So actually two points under this. We'll look at a faithful believer and a friend. Okay? So a faithful believer, you say, if I only choose from faithful believers, my entire pool of people to potentially marry like shrinks down enormously. I know. I know. And I'm not saying that they have to be a finished product. I'm saying they should be a faithful believer whose heart is aiming in the right direction. And you know why? 
I could easily just say, like, because God says so, and that comes across as a little bit heavy-handed, but I'm going to take it from a slightly different angle. If you claim to be a Christian, what does that mean is at the center of your being? If you're a Christian, the God of Christians is Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who is God incarnate, who laid his life down for our sins, paid for our sins, gifted us salvation, and now we will live forever in heaven after we die with him. If you are a Christian, that is at the core of who you are as a person, what makes you fundamentally tick. If you open yourself up to another human being and they laugh at that concept, if you open yourself up to another person that thinks that that is narrow-minded or like unintellectual fantasy or maybe they're just apathetic about it, to what degree do you honestly think you can have true intimacy with an individual? Like, if you open up your central core to another person and they find that center to be either boring or offensive, to what degree of intimacy do you think you can actually have with that person? You know? It's practical and it's logical. And I'm not saying God can't overcome some of this stuff, but I need you to see the logic of that. The second thing, I hope you're listening to the part for married people about being friends because it totally applies. And actually, when you understand the importance of this in a relationship, it's going to change your checklist a little bit. And therefore, it's going to rearrange your potential candidates for marriage. So, for instance, in modern times, in the modern dating world, what the flesh wants to do is it either walks into a bar or it opens an app and you swipe on someone that you find attractive. And then after that, you hope for additional engagement. You try to interact with them and maybe we have some compatibility or some kind of chemistry. And after that, if you're a person of faith, what a lot of people do is they cross their fingers and pray, maybe they'll be a believer too. And you understand, you understand, right? That's the exact opposite way. That's the, that's the way of the flesh. It's the exact opposite direction that the Spirit is prompting us to move. If you're a single person, the Spirit is prompting you to look at a pool of believing individuals, try to become friends with them, see if there is any kind of connection, if you can deepen the friendship. And after that, don't be surprised if some kind of romantic feelings start to bubble up out of that. Do you know that the absolute vast majority of sexual affairs are not due to physical attractiveness? They're not, due, they're not with prostitutes. The vast majority of sexual affairs are with people that you are in close proximity with. You know why? Because there's something, there's a sexiness about friendship. Okay? Now, there's all sorts of implications about that, but... For starters, you can be sexual attraction of friendship lasts a lot longer than the, sex, the physical attraction piece of things. But just understand that this is God's order for things. Remember, remember what we said uh, regarding Adam back in the garden. He said, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Marrow is deeper than flesh. So start looking deeper than someone's flesh to find somebody that you would be bonded to. The second thing that I want to add in here to candidates is the idea of perpetual singleness. And I, I know no one really loves to hear this one, but some of you are going to be gifted with the gift, what the Bible calls the gift of singleness. And some of you are currently simply in a season of singleness for an indeterminate length. Both of those, God will give you the resources to get through, and both of those are opportunities to glorify God in. What I want to say about it, though, is I do think Culturally, we've existed for a long time in such a way that parents who were Christians but in super well-intentioned, in loving homes, they would say to kids growing up, uh, they would assume that they were going to get married. They would assume that they were going to have kids. 
they would assume that they were going to have grandkids. And it's very well-intentioned and very loving, but it's, it's not totally biblically accurate because, you know, the Bible does have a very high view of marriage to such an extent that the Apostle Paul compares the relationship of Jesus Christ as groom to his church, the bride, and he says, that's what I want you to aim for in your marriage relationships too. The Bible has a very high view of marriage, but that exact same Apostle Paul arguably has an even greater, he commends even more singleness over marriage. If you don't believe me, read 1 Corinthians 7. He says it. And therefore, what singles have to understand that there is such a thing as a romantic idol of marriage. You've got to remind yourself, Jesus alone is God. Jesus alone is capable of satisfying your deepest cravings. Don't look to another human to give you what only God himself can give you. Marriage is absolutely a blessing, but at its end, it's designed to point ahead to something greater than itself. It's designed to point ahead. The best marriage at the best moment is designed to point ahead to the intimacy that we will one day have with God. Every year I talk to, it's partially just I've, I've worked with a lot of young single adults over the years. Every year some people come to me and I, I can tell how desperately they want to get married and in some cases how desperately they want to have kids. And what I need to do, and I think my role is at that time, is we back off it a little bit, say look at the macro perspective of this. If a marriage partner, if marriage is a need that you have in your life, you know what God does with human needs? God does with the needs of his children? He abundantly provides for us and meets those needs. On the other hand, if this feels like a need, but it's not actually a need, then probably the worst thing that God could give to you, spiritually speaking, would be a spouse. In other words, when you need more of God, but you think you need a spouse, the worst thing God can do for you spiritually is give you a spouse who you will try to squeeze to give you what only God himself can give you. It's not easy, but honor God whatever your calling might be right now. Seek first his relationship and intimacy with him and let him take care of the rest of the needs. Here's the last thing that I want to say for everyone here because anytime we talk about marriage, divorce, singleness, all, sexual sins, all of it, it's heavy, it can be painful, some of it's public, uh, and therefore it's this heavy thing. My heart is like knowing people who have, have dealt with things, it's just heavy. And so I just want to say this. For those with maybe an unbiblical divorce and or those guilty of sexual sin and feel burdened by that right now, here's what I want you to understand. And, and, and I also want to be really honest and transparent about this. This is part of the reason why a lot of people end up in churches in the city. You know why? Because churches in the suburbs or especially churches in small towns and rural communities, you look around and like everybody's married. And if you're single, it's like, well, what's, you know, what's wrong with you? And it's, in other words, it's so ingrained into the culture that you would get married that they don't even recognize the value attached to singleness. And so you come to the city where in church, you come to churches where uh, not only are there single people, but uh, lots of people who have been through divorce, lots of people have struggled with sexual sins, lots of people have struggled with addictions. And then you come and it's like, well, yeah, me too, get in line. We all got stuff, okay? And it's just one of many. But I want you to see how God actually relates to the most hurting people in the world. And look at the way he frames himself in his relationship to his bride, the church, here in Jeremiah 3. He says, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all of her adulteries. Do you see that? He gave her a certificate of divorce. You know what that means about God? He identifies with divorced people. God knows what it's like to be divorced. So anybody that you ever meet who might have a condescending attitude toward those who 
uh, perhaps have been divorced for one reason or another, just understand you're going to have to answer to God who puts himself in that exact same camp. Maybe the most important thing in this is people who feel someone's going to come to me and they're going to say, yeah, but I was the guilty party in the divorce. Or, yeah, I wasn't, you know, neither of us cheated, but we got a divorce and it wasn't on biblical grounds. It wasn't a biblically permissible divorce. Is there any grace and forgiveness left for me too? And, you know, you look at what Jesus says at the end of this text, and that's the spot where he says, if anyone divorces his husband or wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, they commit adultery, right? And that's like, that sounds very serious. It is serious because it's sin. But it's not the unforgivable sin. You see, there's a difference. We get caught up in this and we have a tendency to rank sins. That what Jesus is talking about, there is sin, but it's not the unforgivable sin. And therefore, if we had growth groups going right now, I guarantee somebody would ask after this, if I am the person who is involved in an unbiblical divorce, is it possible for me to be remarried based on this text? My answer to that would be something like, well, that's like asking, is it possible for somebody who is a gossip to get married or somebody who's a liar to get married or somebody who is embezzles from their, their work to get married. If they are repentant, of course it's possible. Why? Because the distinction that Jesus is making here is not specifically about the, the specific sin that's committed. It's about whether or not there's penitence or impenitence. And actually, I'm going to take it a step further. You want to talk about grace filling holes of unfaithfulness? Look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I mean, my goodness, it's, it might be the most, for my money, the most underappreciated statement of grace that exists in the Bible. You look at the genealogy of Jesus, we won't go through all the parts, but the relationship between King David and Bathsheba, there is arguably no adultery in the history of the planet that was more impactful and caused more hurt in many ways than the adultery between David and Bathsheba to such an extent that it didn't just hurt people, it killed people. And yet after a long time, when God sent a messenger to David, David finally submitted to God's will. He repented of his sin. Did God forgive him? God didn't just forgive him. God forgave him his sin and he blessed that marriage with the fruit of a child named Solomon. And you know what would come from Solomon? The line of the Savior. And you know what that means? You know, did God forgive that sin? Of course God forgave that sin. And if you have any burden of sin and guilt for whatever, divorce or sexual sin, repent. God, of course, forgives that sin too. In Jesus' line is literally what amounts to what you could call unbiblical divorce and sexual immorality. God forgave that. God forgives you too. God amazingly unties the knots that we have twisted into our lives. But he doesn't just untie them. He reacclimates them to be like these beautiful bows. God is so big and so gracious that he buries our death in a way that it always blooms life out of it. And yes, every sinner, I want you to understand, every sinful person, which means every one of us here, as we confessed earlier, has cheated on God. And yet God made a covenant with us. He made a covenant with us in the blood of Jesus. He forgave you, he will never leave you, and he wants you to take that grace and share it in all of your relationships moving forward. Let's close with the prayer. Lord Jesus, we struggle deeply with a selfishness that can destroy our relationship with you and destroy our relationships here on earth. 
I ask that you forgive us for all of our mistakes that hurt you or hurt others. And I ask that you now create in us a new heart that loves, forgives, and covenants just as you have done for us. And may it glorify your name. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.